Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Here we go. Start of a new week. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross and Michael Borky with you. Brian Haydad will rejoin the party tomorrow. Thanks for being with us. If you want to be a part of the conversation, you can do so this afternoon on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. Again, 601-879-4395. That's the number if you want to be a part of the conversation and we would love for you to do just that. Uh, relatively busy weekend in the uh, sports world. You had a bunch of baseball. You had a bunch of basketball. You had DJ go really low at uh, TPC Boston and the Northern Trust Invitational, the first event of the FedEx Cup playoffs. We have winners and losers coming up. Lane Kiffin met with the media. We've got some of the quotes. I don't have the audio for you yet, but do have some of the quotes from uh, what he had to say to uh, members of the media that cover Ole Miss earlier today. So plenty to uh, get to you. And looks like less bad news in the Gulf of Mexico than uh, we thought there could be. As uh, Is it Marco that has weakened significantly and still trying to keep an eye on what Laura's going to do? Yeah, so Marco's gotten weaker, also pushing more and more west. Uh, so that's good for us. And Laura's still pretty strong, at least compared to Marco. And the latest projection that I just looked at about 20 minutes ago shows Laura going a little bit further west. Now, uh, she, if you will, is not even really in the Gulf yet, so a lot of things can change between now and, what is it, Wednesday uh, when she's expected to make landfall. But the projection shows a little bit further west, even more uh, than initially expected. So both uh, good news for the double-barrel hurricane. Yeah, given everything that is going on in our world, not getting the disaster of a major hurricane making landfall along the Gulf Coast, whether it's in Texas or Florida or the landmass in between, uh, or maybe that's Louisiana, Florida, and the landmass in between. Anywhere on the Gulf Coast, that is uh, that's good news for everyone uh, that lives in that part of the state of Mississippi or Alabama or Louisiana or in Texas or over in Florida as well. So good news on that front. That might even put Marco on the uh, the winners list when we get to that in You're the four kidding. o'clock hour, uh, or maybe it puts us in the winners list and Marco as a storm in the uh, the losers list. I'm not sure exactly how you break that down. Got a final already today in the NBA. Milwaukee beat Orlando 121-106 to go up three one in the first round playoff series. There, Houston and Oklahoma City uh, just about to get started. Houston up two games to one. Miami could close out Indiana tonight. They lead three games to none. Lakers up two games to one on Portland. That one gets going tonight as well. And one of the big stories of the uh, of the weekend was the play of Luka Doncic for the Dallas Mavericks. He was sensational yesterday for the uh, for the Mavs. Yeah, and I, I keep seeing people say that 
Uh, well, he's probably at his ceiling because even though he's a young guy, he's been a pro for a while. Uh, I mean, he was a pro in Europe in his late teens before he came over to the States and became an NBA player. But uh, people that say that, are, are you not watching him right now? Because if this is his ceiling and he stays healthy, he's an all-time great. The numbers he has put up this season and last season, if, if, if he just maintains this, he's an all-time great. So why is that the narrative? Anyway, yes, you're right. Phenomenal. Um, shooting, passing, rebounding, he does it all. I mean, not the best defender in the world because he's a little bit limited athletically compared to some guys, but um, just out-of-this-world sensational basketball player, and uh, it looks like the world is waking up to that. Yeah, I mean, so what if he doesn't turn out to be the greatest of all time? He's an outstanding NBA player in the current era, and that's good enough. Yesterday, the Celtics closed out the 76ers, sweeping the four games with a four-point win yesterday, 110-106. Boston led by Jason Tatum with 28 points and 15 rebounds. Pretty strong double-double there as the uh, Sixers went kind of hopelessly in the first round. Mavs and Clippers. Trust the process, though. Yeah, trust it. Uh, although, the Clippers are now a playoff team, and they've got some good pieces, and a few years ago they were winning like 12 games. Yeah, they're about to fire What's their better? coach too, though. Well, tough tough day for I mean, him. it's not his fault that you traded away all your shooters. I, I mean, what is he supposed to do? Anyway. Mentioned Luca a second ago. He had a triple-double yesterday, went for 43-17 and 13 assists in a two-point overtime win for the Mavericks over the Clippers. Lou Williams led the way for the Clippers with 36 points in that game. Series is even at two games apiece. Raptors made easy work of the Nets in the first-round series, and boy, were they impressive. Uh, impressive Serge Ibaka had 27 points, 150 to 122 to close it out. Really pulled away in the uh, in the third quarter, outscoring the Nets by 20 in the third quarter of that game en route to the 28-point win. And a pretty decent series going on. It's close between the Jazz and the Nuggets. Jazz lead it 3-1 to one after yesterday's two-point win over the Nuggets, 129-127. to 127. Donovan Mitchell, great again, 51 points in the win for the Jazz yesterday over the Nuggets. So that gets you up to date with what's happening in the NBA, excuse me, the NBA and uh, as I mentioned a second ago, another game just about to get started, Rockets and Thunder down inside the bubble in Orlando. Borky, how was your weekend? Weekend was good. Uh, did a lot of cleaning and just, like, picking up the house. You know what I mean? It just it, When you have a baby, as, as you know, threefold, um, things can get out of hand quickly as far as the clean, cleanliness around the house. And uh, just made it a point uh, to take yes, care of that this weekend. Absolutely. <laughs> And, and he's a crawler now, too, as you mentioned on Friday. So uh, that has changed everything. But he's sleeping better. I think it's because he's exerting more energy. We've gotten, okay. knock on wood, 12 nonstop hours, four nights in a row. So For him? Yes. It's like 6 to 6? It's 7.30 seven to, seven? to 7. So wow. It, it, and sometimes we'll put him down a little bit sooner and he'll... Wake up either way, but 11 and a half hours a night for four straight nights without even like the wake up where they don't really wake up and they just cry for five minutes and go back to sleep. That hasn't even happened. It's been a dream, but he's still a mess. And that's really what the focus was this weekend was just getting everything in order. Yeah, and they're going to get lots more stuff. And as stuff yeah. comes in, you have to try and figure out a way to, uh, a way to mess, uh, just, Clean the mess. 
It's always a mess. It's just like you've got a hole in the bottom of your boat, and you're taking a bucket and tossing the water out. Well, more water's coming right back in. more water is coming in. If you are a purger, you've got a good chance of surviving. If you hold on to things, then good luck. Maybe you can clean out your house in 18 to to 20 years. Uh, Again, the C Spire text line is open if you want to be part of the show this afternoon, 601-879-4395, 879-4395. Love to hear from you as always. And you can go ahead and start sending us if you would like your winners and losers from the weekend. Um, Borky, to me, the, the, the headline that grabbed me more than anything else I saw all weekend long, and maybe more than anything I've seen in a month, the NFL, through its just massive testing protocol. They got plenty of money to do tests the right way. Had 77 false positives this weekend. The NFL has cleared all individuals who tested positive over the weekend for the coronavirus following what its testing partner is calling an isolated contamination during test preparation. That is a direct quote. All of the original test results have been classified as false positives. Eleven teams were affected by the mistake. Coaches, players, Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen, among those whose initial test resulted in a false positive, forcing him to miss the team's practice on Sunday. That's according to Adam Schefter. The NFL retested the original 77 samples, all of which had been processed at the same bioreference lab in New Jersey. All of the retests came back negative. They also conducted the quick point-of-care test, the rapid result test, and all 77 of those tests were negative. It makes it almost impossible to fully believe any set of numbers you see. Again, this is not the New Jersey State Department of Health or the Mississippi Department of Health or the Texas Department of Health or the CDC. And I'm not knocking any of those organizations, but all of those organizations are absolutely overwhelmed and they're doing their best to turn tests around quickly. The NFL, who has unlimited resources and is contracted exclusively with private labs across the country to implement this incredibly extensive testing protocol. Had 77 players, not 7, not 17. Way closer to 100 than either of those numbers. Come back positive, and none of them were positive. It's not a resource issue. Oh, it was just a mistake. How can you trust this process at any level if the state can't get it right? Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, and you on this Monday.
Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad will return tomorrow after a few days of vacation. I think Haydad saw some high school football on Friday night. He did. He tweeted a picture from the vet in Jackson. Pretty cool. He was wanting to go back and uh, and, and see St. Al play, and uh, I guess was able to uh, able to do that. And pretty cool. Can't wait to hear all about that. I, I think he didn't want to talk about the results. He was just happy to be watching football. Hey, that's okay. Yeah, certainly, uh, certainly understandable from uh, from that standpoint. If the results didn't go uh, the way you wanted it to, so Borky, we were talking just a second ago about this bioreference lab in New Jersey. And listen, I'm sure they're doing good work, and I'm sure their explanation is an accurate explanation. But if it hadn't been the NFL who kind of raised their eyebrows and go, hold on a second, 77 positive tests? That goes against every trend we have had in testing so far. Then would this error have been uncovered? If it was 77 random tests that doctor's offices or state health departments or some other entity, hospitals, were subbing out to a private lab, and they had just come from different places, and they would gotten those 77 positives, would it have raised an eyebrow? Would anybody have noticed that, eh, that seems a little off? And if that's happening at a private lab who right now's only job is to run COVID tests for the NFL, I, I don't know. I, let me back up. I don't know if that's their only job. Maybe they're, maybe they're a lab that does all kinds of testing. But they're a good enough lab with a good enough reputation that the National Football League contracted with them to be one of their testing partners. And they messed up. And they admit it, and they tell you why they messed up. But if that's happening at this high level, where else is it happening? How much is it happening? That's a fair question. And it's, it's, it's eye-opening and alarming. Because of everything you mentioned, and I couldn't help but think about my own situation uh, during the outbreak of COVID. My wife has actually been tested herself. Luckily, uh, she was not positive. But I thought, you know, what happened if she was? She would have had to isolate for two weeks and not touch her son or be around him for two weeks. Everybody that she had been in contact with would have had to have done the same thing, myself included. And what would have happened if we did all of that? And she was one of those. You know what I mean? And so how many of those across the country, how many people are having to not touch their children and tuck them into bed at night? How many people are having to take two weeks off of work? And some people don't have paid vacation or a salaried position where their work and their pay is entirely dependent on them actually working. Two weeks off. Everybody around them, two weeks off. Everybody they've touched, two weeks off for a false positive. It's easy for the NFL to figure this out because, as you said, they they get tested every single day. Every day. So that was no problem. But what about the people who did the drive-through test that they had to wait hours to get? And then they get a positive. And they are immediately told, because we got the paperwork when my wife got tested, that described what you have to do if you're positive. And that included getting contacted by somebody with the government to investigate the people around you to figure out where it came from. What what would have happened if she was one of those false positives? Or or one of you? And how widespread is this? It's eye-opening, it's alarming, makes you really wonder what's going on. 
Because if it wasn't NFL players, to your point, all 77 of those people for the next two weeks and everybody around them's lives were going to be altered for a test that wasn't actually positive. Yeah. And look, I'm not I'm not trying to paint with the broad brush here. I, I know these testing companies are doing a great job. These labs all over the country are doing the great jo- a great job. The State Department of Health's state's departments of health that are doing testing themselves. They've been overwhelmed, and they're turning them around as quickly as they can. I'm not knocking the entire process. I'm just saying we have become so reliant on positivity numbers. I mean, people just bang the drum on positivity numbers as as kind of the, the harbinger for what the virus is doing. I just don't know how positive, I'm sorry, I don't know how accurate all of the numbers are that we're getting. I'm not saying anybody's not doing their best. I think everybody's probably doing their best. At least you and, hope so. Yeah, I mean, you, you certainly hope so. But you look at it and you go, I mean, here you go. Tom Pelissero, who covers the NFL, tweeted this um, about an hour ago. Dr. Alan Sills, former Mississippi State Bulldog, the NFL's chief medical officer, says that between August 12th and 20th, there were 58,397 tests administered. It's a staggering number. Almost 60,000 tests in a nine-day window, including 23,260 to players. Out of the almost 60,000 tests, there were six confirmed positives and zero among players. That's staggering. Staggering. And and NFL players and teams and personnel, whatever they're doing, they need to be commended uh, strongly for that effort. That's incredible to think about. Yeah. It really is. But it what, really, really is. What bothers me about this situation especially is the college football side of things. Because unless it has changed and I have missed it, you cannot test out of quarantine. That's correct. I spoke with someone at, um, at the, the conference level. And I said, I don't understand that. And he said, yeah, we get it. But these are the guidelines that our medical professionals, in conjunction with the CDC and the return-to-play team and the NCAA guidelines, etc., these are the numbers that we're working with. I do think it's important because at times we have been uh, accused is not the right word, but categorized as being a little callous with regard to the deaths, and I've never intended to do that. I mean, when it's all said and done, this virus is going to take more than 200,000 American lives. I think we're at 177,000 who have died at this point. And at times we've pointed to the mortality rate because it's a, you know, fairly small percentage, an extremely small percentage in terms of the overall positive test rates. And I'm not sure that's the right way to, to look at it. I actually, I'm borrowing this idea from from someone that I heard earlier today. Point out the fact that I think it was um, I was a former Ohio State player that's on the radio now. Um, 
Bobby his Carpenter? To, no, his name will come to me at some point. Hartsock, Ben Hartsock. Played at Ohio State uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And he said, maybe the numbers that we need to be looking at, and I think some people are, is the, the numbers that have adverse effects. Hospitalizations, ventilator usage, ICU usage, mortality. So we can't just go, well, you know, only 177,000 people have died. Now, a point that he made, and I thought this was a good one, is COVID-19 has created another way for people to die that didn't exist to our knowledge a year ago, didn't exist to our knowledge prior to March or prior to January or December, you know, whatever the time. So we've created a new way, and that goes into a long list of things that can kill people, heart disease, cancer, Ebola, you know. Long list of things. So just using the mortality rate is probably not fair. But the folks that have focused on hospitalization rates, because if you go back to to March and April and May, when this thing was really spiking for the first time, what was the drum that was being beaten over and over and over? What have we got to do? We've got to flatten the curve. Why do we have to flatten the curve? Well, one, we don't want people to be sick. But the real reason that we had to flatten the curve was so our health care system, locally, regionally, and nationally, would not be overrun, would not be incapacitated. And there was a lot of hard work that was done to expand the health care system to handle a surge. And then the numbers came back down a little bit. And then they rose again on kind of the bounce-back deal and... Hospitalization rates and ICU rates have gone up a little bit, but they've never gotten to that point where we were over capacity or we were into that like dangerous surge capacity point. And I think that's what we got to look at because, yes, there are a gazillion positive tests out there and they're more popping up every day. And while those numbers are going down, the good news is our, our healthcare system hasn't gotten flooded. We're still handling it, and that is why I think we can move forward. Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll be right back. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Lane Kiffin met with the media earlier today and had some interesting things to say. You can probably find on the Ole Miss website, if not yet, a little bit later, a full transcript if you are interested in doing so. Uh, Probably top of the list... He didn't go into a ton of detail about quarterback play. Not a ton. But he had some really good things to say about Matt Corral. said, I thought Matt played extremely well. Ole Miss had his first scrimmage on Saturday inside the stadium. said he made some big plays and was really accurate. 
John Rice Plumley had a little more up-and-down day, but did some really good things. He also fumbled once for a big turnover, but both did some things to excite us. Borky, we've talked a lot about people that watched Ole Miss every single game and covered the team versus the way people regionally and nationally looked at the quarterback situation at Ole Miss. And for a lot of reasons, John Rice Plumley was the starter from Alabama on last year. You saw bits and pieces of Matt Corral, but he lost his job after the injury to John Rice Plumley. I know it's only been one scrimmage, and there's only been one week of camp. But it sounds like this is Matt Corral's job to lose. Yeah, I got sent uh, a bunch of messages over the weekend. Uh, there was a, a stat line that leaked out, and who knows if it's true or not, uh, of course. I mean, it's a, a scrimmage that nobody watched, and the stats from an anonymous Twitter account that may or may not be accurate, but the Kiffin quotes and other reporting seem to think that a lot of people uh, agree that Corral's having a really good camp and performed well at this scrimmage on Saturday. And that's what's so mystifying to me. Uh, And I think it still comes back to the fact that people only really watched Ole Miss play against LSU. And even though it was a four-score game, they saw this kid run all over the field against the number one team in the country, and they automatically thought that that's the quarterback of the future. And I understand why they think that, truly, because he's a supreme athlete. But just to discredit altogether, I told you this last week, uh, when Kiffin was on SEC Now with Dari Noka, after Kiffin, to Dari's face, said, well, don't count out Matt Corral. You know, we have a quarterback competition right now. It's a quarterback competition. We like Matt Corral. Dari's transition from Kiffin to another segment was, well, we know there's no quarterback controversy in Oxford, but in Columbia, Missouri. I mean, just didn't even listen to the coach tell him that we have a quarterback competition here. It's crazy, uh, the difference, but... It's people just completely discrediting Matt Corral is I don't understand it. I mean, yes, as a freshman, he was erratic at times and lost his job in an offense that didn't really fit him. But he's really talented and athletic as well. And to just assume that oh he's got no shot at Plumlee's offense, I think is not irresponsible. That's a strong word, but it's not grasping the situation at hand at least. Yeah, I mean, you think back to Matt Corral when he was recruited. He was a five-star quarterback, wasn't he? Four-star. Yeah, he it was a, an upper-tier quarterback, and people said that he had an NFL-quality arm. I mean, he was at one of those special quarterback camps. He had the strongest arm at the camp. I mean, the kid's got arm talent, and he's a good athlete, and Maybe this is overthinking it, but I've looked at the kind of quarterbacks that Ole Miss has recruited since Lane Kiffin has taken over, and they all seem to be more of the pro-style, throw-the-football-first kind of quarterback. Now, that doesn't mean anything for this year, and Plumlee could still win the job, and they they may love him and are going to cater their offense to his skill set. But one of them, as we saw, is a is farther along throwing the football than the other. And he also has had an offseason after his freshman year, redshirt freshman year, but still, to improve on the things he needed to improve on. Matt Corral had offers, in addition to Ole Miss, from Alabama, Florida, Southern Cal, Arizona State, Georgia, Michigan, Texas A&M, UCLA, and others. 
It was an extensive offer list. He was highly sought after. He was a top ten quarterback prospect out of the state of California. I say all that not to, like, just to point out he was really thought highly of coming out of high school. He did a lot of really good things in a state that produces big-time college quarterbacks year after year after year. The point is the talent has always been there. The arm strength is massive. I was on a show earlier today talking about him, and I said, I'm not surprised. I said the the knock on Matt Corral was consistency and decision-making. He would make three straight elite throws, and then he might bounce the next two or, or bounce one 10 yards short of a receiver and then airmail one by 30 yards or, or that was 10 feet over his head that landed 15 yards beyond the receiver. And then he might come back and throw just two on the money and then would take an unnecessary risk and find himself in a turnover situation. If Matt Corral, to go with the, the talent that is there, can operate within the confines of the offense and can limit uh, that was a combination between eliminate and limit, limit the costly mistakes because of bad decisions, then he can absolutely not only be the quarterback, but be a really good quarterback. And we'll see how that plays out. Matt Corral handled the benching last year really well, too, to his credit. Yeah. And the two of them seem to have gotten along pretty well in spite of, of everything. To the, And they're in competition again this year. And uh, the, as we played the audio last week, uh, they're working out together at 5 a.m. and studying film together and stuff. Yeah. So that's that's pretty cool. But, yeah, man, where, where do you think that comes from, honestly? You just the complete discreditation, creditation, if that's a word, uh, of Corral in winning this job. Well, I think you go back to, I mean, I think people locally that cover this team are not even remotely surprised that a new coaching staff that kind of gives everybody a, an equal starting point would come away with the decision that Matt Corral is the best quarterback. Now, I do think you have an elite athletic talent, as you pointed out a second ago, in John Rice Plumley, and they will figure out a way to get him on the field. Although... Lane Kiffin pointed out that that's not what they're focused on right now. He said, I don't talk about schematic personnel moves. Because he was asked about, well, are you going to try and get John Rice Plumley? He said, right now he's, he's a quarterback. And he's competing for the starting quarterback job. I mean, Matt Corral could have a terrible week. John Rice Plumley could have a great week. And we could be having a different conversation a week from now. Based on what Lane Kiffin tells us next Monday. But if John Rice Plumley is not the quarterback, you've got to figure out a way to get a guy like him on the field because he can help your offensive football team. He, he just I can't. suspect they will. Even yeah. if they line him up at quarterback at times. A, a more sensical approach to playing two quarterbacks in a game compared to the one you saw a year ago. With more purpose. Somebody says, any chance Ole Miss would use John Rice Plumley like Christian McCaffrey? They seem similar in ways. Uh, I mean, yes, they are similar in that they're both white. They are similar in that they are both athletic. But Christian McCaffrey is a bona fide running back. Like, he was a running back at Stanford. He is a running back in the NFL. 
Do teams do other things with him? Did they at Stanford, do they with the Panthers? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Because he's athletic enough to do other things. But Christian McCaffrey is a running back first. Don Rice Plumley is not a running back first. He is a quarterback first. He's an exceptionally gifted running quarterback, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is a tailback. Not a huge guy. He's plenty strong and obviously fast, but he's not a huge guy. And Ole Miss may be at its deepest at running back than at any point in the last, I don't know how long. I've been saying since Deuce McAllister was in school because his high-end talent, I don't care who was behind him, um, if that's fair. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's too big of a stretch. I mean, there have been some good running backs that have come along. Ben Jarvis Green Ellis was a nearly a decade in the NFL. Bolden Brandon Bolden had a long career in the NFL and is still there. Uh, Mark Ingram was at times really, really good. Jordan, That Alabama um, he was. Yes. Jordan, um, what was Jordan's last name? Number 22. Jordan Wilkins, 1,000-yard rusher, really good running back. But the combination of Jerry and Ely and Snoop Carter and apparently Parrish, the true freshman, has been really good so far in training camp. Henry Parrish, Jr. So you know about Ely. I think people learned about Snoop Connor a year ago. And now you're talking about Henry Parrish getting into the mix, and the expectation is he is going to play. And by the way, nobody has to worry about four games in your red shirt. It's a free year for everybody. They're just going to roll them out and let them play if they can play. Questions coming in on the Ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. Walter pointed out uh, Joe Gunn, Dexter McCluster. Got a text from a buddy who also mentioned Joe Gunn and Charles Stackhouse. So, yeah, there have been some, absolutely, there have been really good running backs at Ole Miss. We're only a few years removed from talking about an issue in the fact that Ole Miss couldn't run the ball. And it was a combination of offensive line and ball carrier. But Ole Miss couldn't run the ball. That doesn't seem to be the issue now. And the commitment to the run is going to be fascinating to watch this year. There was no commitment whatsoever to the pass last year. Which may be the most illustrative point that's out there you got to be a little bit balanced. Now, Mike Leach might argue otherwise, but even in his office offense where he throws it so much, they run it some. They take advantage of matchups and numbers, and sometimes they run the ball. And I think you're going to see Mississippi State do that because they got a guy named Kylan Hill in the backfield this year. The overall point was like the collective talent in the Ole Miss running back room, where you have Jerry Ely, who was really good as a freshman, you have Snoop Connor, who was really good as a freshman, and frankly, not many people knew about him 
Like good in the Mississippi-Alabama game, was a good high school player, but kind of flew below the radar from a recruiting standpoint. And Ole Miss felt like it got a coup with Snoop Connor. And then you add Henry Parrish Jr. to the mix, who by all accounts through the first week of practice and a scrimmage has made some big plays and looks the part and is expected to play a role in the offense. So what about the rest of the offense, right? you got to figure out somebody besides Elijah Moore that can catch the ball. Jonathan Mingo has gotten some pretty strong praise from the Ole Miss coaching staff. A healthy Braylon Sanders as well. That should matter. He's been at it for a while. And we'll get another year if he's so interested, so inclined. What about the offensive line? It sounds like they feel pretty good about the first group. Ben Brown is now going to play center. Royce Newman is good. Those two are probably NFL offensive linemen. After that, we'll see. There's been positive talk about Warren. There's been positive talk about Broker. It sounds like the Ole Miss coaching staff is pretty confident in the first five and then maybe two or three more. After that, depth becomes an issue in a hurry. So what does that remind you of, Michael Borky? Does it remind you of Ole Miss 2012? Yeah. Hugh Freeze's first year, when all five offensive linemen started all 13 games, all 12 games in the regular season, and the bowl game against Pittsburgh and Birmingham. It hasn't happened since. I don't remember it happening anywhere else, just off the top of my head. I'm sure somebody's done it. You also have but two having, additional SEC games, which are a, light, a little bit more physical than Southeast Missouri State, with all due respect. Sure. But having your center, both guards, and both tackles start as a group and play the majority of all 13 games you play is just unheard of. Freak injury, whatever. That's kind of the situation that Ole Miss is in. They're pretty good in that first group on the offensive line. After that, depth could become an issue in a hurry. So, things looking okay on the offensive side. Defensive side, maybe a different story. What a reversal of roles, though. You want to talk about things that we've been discussing over the years with Ole Miss's inability to run, the narrative has been, and it's accurate, pretty good up front, secondary's okay, linebacker position's a nightmare. I mean, it's been years that that, that's kind of been the thing, as a linebacker position's been a point of weakness. Now it's kind of the opposite. Huge questions on the defensive line, depth as well. Who knows about secondary? They're waiting to get a waiver approved from, as Kiffin said, after practice, somebody that will start if the waiver gets approved. Which who knows with the NCAA they'll talking about Otis Reese. Yeah, they'll spin the their waiver from Georgia and, and see whatever it lands on, and then we'll give him eligibility or not. But the linebacker position at Ole Miss for the first time in years is experienced, deep, solid. It's obviously issues on the defensive line, especially in the absence of Sam Williams. Ole Miss was counting on Sam Williams to be a really big part of the defense this year. He's got pretty significant legal issues, and there is no comment from old from Ole Miss, other than 
He is not with the team. By the way, we'll do this exact same thing tomorrow when Haydad returns for Mississippi State's roster. We'll go position group by position group on both sides of the ball and kind of look at where they are. Where are the areas that there's reason to be excited? Where are the areas that there's reason to be concerned? And what does that all mean? One hour in the books, Sports Talk Mississippi with you on this Monday. Winners and losers is next. Ole Miss has released its game day attendance policy. We will get into that later this hour. They are going with a, uh, a different concept on the ticketing than I think we have seen anywhere else so far. Um, single game tickets only, and you will be able to pick the games that you are interested in on a month-by-month basis. So the September 26th game against Florida, that ticket selection process will begin on September 8th. The end of September, you'll be able to pick the October games. At the end of October, you'll be able to pick the November games. And they have adjusted the pricing to reflect seat donation, ticket price, and parking pass all rolled into the cost of the ticket, which makes the tickets more expensive on an individual game basis. But the reality is probably won't be many people that are able to go to all five home games, if I'm looking at this correctly. So we will uh, we'll get into that coming up a little bit later. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. The C Spire text line is open, 601-879-4395. Be honest, you know your business deserves better, so get better with a C Spire business internet and phone bundle. Backed by real support. See how C Spire can power your success today at cspire.com slash business. 601-879-4395, 601 879 Four three nine five. Time right now for winners and losers. We got winners. We got losers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Winners and losers. What did you like from the weekend? What did you not like from the weekend? I don't know if this would have been your winner or not, Borky. There are certainly some good options out there, but I am taking Dustin Johnson. Yeah, so he didn't shoot 57 or 58 or 59 on Friday, but he did shoot 67 on Thursday, 60 on Friday, 64 on Saturday, and then carded a final round 63 that included a couple of hour delay at the end of the round. And when he came back to finish his round, birdied the last two holes that he played, 17 and 18, to finish minus 30. I was talking to someone earlier today. They said if you had taken DJ's front nine in relation to par for the entire tournament, he would have finished third. Front nine only. <laughs> Minus 19 on the front for four rounds. That would have been good enough for third place. Cumulatively, 30 strokes under par with his worst round being a 67. That's some good play. To say the least. Now, 
when you have greens that are soft, fairways that are gettable, and long irons and wedges into greens, those guys are going to be able to score. And that was reflected in the scoreboard all across. I mean, DJ shoots minus 30. If you just throw him out, Borky, we could have still said that course was not a very good test for the best players in the world. Because if you threw away DJ, Harris English would have won it at 19 under. Daniel Berger would have finished second at 18 under, and you would have had a two-way tie for third with Kevin Kisner and Scotty Scheffler at 17 under each. Yeah, they keep trying to sell the playoffs. And look, it's I like golf. Then put it, it on a real golf course. Then make it tougher. Because that didn't feel... I don't know how much of it you watched. It didn't feel like playoffs. No. And it gets a little bit better as it goes along. So you go from Boston to the BMW this week at Olympia Fields. And then next week they'll be at, uh, at Eastlake for the Tour Championship. Not a very tough test, though, for the best golfers in the world this past weekend in, uh, in Boston. But, but I, I am curious, when you see a guy shoot 30 under, what was the worst score in the entire field of guys that made the cut? 70 players made the cut. Patrick Rogers shot plus seven. What a schmuck that guy must feel like. <laughs> How'd you do on tour this week? Uh, I finished 37 shots back. There were only, but here's the thing, in the entire field, there were only three players, three, that finished over par for the tournament. Patrick Rogers at plus seven, Matt Jones at plus two, and Richie Warinsky at plus one. Everybody else in the field was under par for the tournament. Yeah, that's that's not playoffs. But DJ is the winner. You got a winner? Yeah, uh, a couple, but we'll start with the stat you gave earlier in the show, but NFL players. From August 12th to 20th, 58,400 COVID tests given to 8,500 players in personnel. 23,000 of those went directly to players. Zero positive tests in the entire NFL. And this is before they cut their rosters down. So there are some teams that still have 80 guys on their roster, not a single positive getting tested every single day. They're not in a bubble. They're not in Orlando getting isolated from everybody else. That's awesome. And we've got under three weeks to go before the season begins. That's also awesome. Maybe Patrick Rogers is a winner. We get a message on the ceasefire text line that says, 37 shots back and still probably took home a smooth 15,000 for the week. It was actually 19,475 for last place. You make the cut, but then finish last among guys that make the cut. $19,475 for Patrick Rogers. It's not bad for a week. Not bad at all. Borky, if you could earn $19,000 a week, you'd be okay with that, right? I don't think you'd see or hear much from me, but yeah. Well, I mean, I'm assuming that you would have to work to make that money at some level. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Luka Doncic is a winner. He is a star in the NBA. Borky said that different guys are looking at him in, in different ways, and that's fine. Look look at him however you want to look at him, but he is a star in the NBA. 
Yesterday, Luca went for 43 points. He had 17 rebounds, 13 assists, two steals, and a block. If you're looking for a negative, he turned it over seven times. Seven of the 11 turnovers for the team belong to Luka Doncic. He played 46 minutes in the game yesterday, most minutes by anybody on the team, and only one minute short of what Kawhi Leonard uh, Leonard played. That was most in the game for anybody. He played 47 minutes. And that's a heck of a series. Clippers, Mavericks, we said we thought it would be fun. I think it's been more fun than really anybody uh, imagined. For sure. And I'll give you one more winner from the NBA. The Toronto Raptors are good. And they're even good with the departure of Kawhi Leonard, who, you know, is either the best player in the game or maybe not. Maybe not the best player in the game, but he's top five. I think he's top two. Okay. Put him wherever you want to put him. And how about Terrence Davis on those Toronto Raptors in yesterday's 150-122 to win over the Brooklyn Nets? Mississippi's own went 5 of 10 shooting, including 4 of 8 from behind the arc. He chipped in 14 points, 4 rebounds, and had 2 assists. Terrence Davis is continuing to work himself toward a major contract a couple of years from now. Just a rookie. He has averaged seven and a half points, three and a half rebounds, one and a half assists per game. He's been really good as a rookie. Toronto, they're they're such a great story. Kyle Kyle Lowry got hurt though, sprained his ankle, but they don't seem to be too concerned about it being a long term thing. But either way, that is a team that's built on G League and players that nobody wanted. Kyle Lowry, G League. Pascal Siakam, G League. Fred Van Vliet, bet on himself. G League. Their coach, Nick Nurse, G League. I mean, they they are built from a bunch of nobodies up in Canada, and they play good, solid team basketball. They're really fun to watch. And I've got a few more winners, actually. But something that I noticed, the big story's been Montrez Harrell and what he said to Luka and called him an expletive, expletive white boy. And the league being silent on it's not a good thing. I think he should have been punished. But how that got handled should be how everything that gets handled. Guy apologized, went to Luca himself and apologized. They agreed that it's cool and he's not going to do it again and they're moving on. That's how we should handle anytime somebody says something that they shouldn't or makes a mistake. Own it, apologize, and we all move on. But not in today's culture. More winners and losers when we continue Sports Talk Mississippi on a Monday. Porky, you said uh, you had more winners? Fire away. Yeah, the College Football Playoff Committee. I know a lot of people think that bowl season's not going to happen and stuff, and really the goal around here is to just play 10 games to save your athletic departments and whatnot, but... Them just going forward with having meetings and putting a playoff together cracks me up. They don't care that there's no Pac-12 or Big Ten. They announced today that they have their their meeting scheduled for college football season to get together, put a poll together, and have a playoff. Forget the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. We don't need them. We're going to have a playoff. I love that. The jokes write themselves... But isn't this what they should be doing? Absolutely, this is what they should be doing. The college football season, 
is played in the fall. And absent a scenario where everybody says we're out, then you move forward as best you can. And the crazy thing is the chair of the college football playoff committee is an athletic director at a school that is not playing football this fall, correct? Correct. Should be plenty of time for uh, that committee to actually watch games this year and make sure they're fully informed. I mean, it's a bum deal if you play in the Pac-12 or the Big Ten, but you're the one that chose to to, to sit it out. Yep. And we'll see how it goes, right? I mean, we'll, we'll see if this thing gets played. My level of confidence that the season begins is pretty high. My level of confidence that everybody in the SEC plays 10 games, not nearly as high. But they're going to try. They're going to give it everything they've got. They're going to do their very best to get this season in. It may be a little bumpy. There may be some starts and stops. There may be a pause or two along the way. But if the ACC and the SEC and the Big 12 prove that this can be done, then, man, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 look bad. And they have every reason in the world to be furious. Although the Pac-12 seems to be taking it quite well. It is different there. I mean, it's the transparency that changes everything. I mean, Larry Scott is the butt of a lot of jokes, but you got to give him credit. I mean, even if you disagree with the decision, you know why they made it. You know they communicated it with everybody. You know there were Zoom meetings and calls and documents and everything. It was as transparent as possible, whereas the Big Ten, as we've learned and we'll discuss later, the athletic directors were spoken for incorrectly. So their voices were not only not heard, they were represented in the wrong way. Well, but I mean, ultimately it's going to be the president's decision. Of course, but that's how bad it was there. That's how non-transparent it was. That's how the decision-making process differs so much from the Pac-12. That's why Pac-12 parents are driving up to San Francisco to protest at the headquarters. Everybody's making fun of the Big Ten parents for doing that. USA Today columnist um, called them bad or insinuated they were bad parents that weren't looking out for their kids. But they weren't there to say, give us football. If you actually listen to them, they were there to say, tell us why there's not. Well, interestingly enough, there were only about 25 of them that showed up. Yeah. More me- more media than actual parents. And guess who was there to listen from the, uh, from the Big Ten? Nobody. Nobody. Because all the Big Ten people are working remote- remotely. And that may be part of the reason that more parents didn't actually show up. All right. What else? Is that it? Uh, I think that's it. You took mine. Oh, I forgot. There is one more. I had four today. That's pretty impressive. Uh, We get college football on Saturday night. On ESPN. Real, live, Division I, FCS, college football on ESPN on Saturday night. Austin P. and UCA... University of Central Arkansas, from Montgomery, Alabama. Love it. You going to watch? I'm going to watch every second. It's funny, I saw somebody point out earlier that this will guaranteed be the highest waged on FCS game in history. There will be more money bet on this game than probably every FCS game combined before this. Our 
listening audience has a diverse set of interests. Sean and Brandon submits a winner on the C Spire text line. You can do it as well, 601-879-4395. Winner, KTM Motorcycles. A KTM won each of the three MotoGP classes this past weekend. In the premier MotoGP class, KTM won its first race ever. Sean? No disrespect intended. I'm just going to have to trust you on this one. (laughs) Uh, Here's one. Sophie, whatever her last name is, sorry, not trying to be disrespectful, just don't remember, that won the Women's Open is a winner. She didn't even have tour status. Pretty good performance, right? Yeah, that stuff used to happen back in the 20s when amateurs would win things. Uh, Let's see. I'll look up Sophie's last name in a second. I should know that, and I don't off the top of my head. Uh, Anyway, we'll we'll circle back to that. It was the AIG Women's Open that was played in Scotland at, uh, at Troon. And... Again, we'll circle back to that in a second. A couple of other winners from you. Jeff says $19,000 a week. That's Richard Cross money right there. Yeah. Madison Ridgeland Academy. Winner. Beat Trinity out of Texas over the weekend. How's that for a start to your football season? And isn't that the school where Deion Sanders is involved? That's right. Yeah, seeing the pictures of Deion Sanders uh, standing on the field where I used to live. I mean, my backyard basically touched the high school there. And so I would li- sit on the back porch and listen to MRA games. And, of course, you know, the year I move away is the year that Deion Sanders is coaching on that field. But uh, surreal to see, but awesome win. Um, apparently we have so, – so we've got motocross submitted in the winner's category. We also have disc golf submitted in the winner's category. You ever played disc golf? Uh, I have not. I have, but I mean, it was like very recreational. Not like, I mean, there are people that are really serious about it. Now, discs don't cost as much, generally speaking, as golf clubs do. But the guys that have got like the satchel full of discs, I mean, they've got significant money invested in it. Get a little bit of exercise depending on the, the, uh, the sport. You know, as a big disc golfer is, um, uh, Adam, the guy that hosts, CBS studio stuff on SEC Saturdays. Adam, I can't think of his name. I'll get back to you on that. So anyway, uh, several days before the start of the Dynamic Discs Open, the tournament's title sponsor and the Disc Golf Pro Tour finalized a deal that they hope will elevate disc golf to the next level of visibility and credibility as a competitive sport. CBS Sports Network will air four hours of disc golf content from DDO, the Dynamic Discs Open, and a separate skins match all produced by Jomez Pro. I don't know if I pronounced that right or not, but uh, apparently some people are excited about this. Zucker. Adam Zucker. I couldn't think of his last name. Adam Zucker. 
who I wouldn't call a friend, but certainly an acquaintance, like a. Uh, I would hope you wouldn't call him a friend after not. No, I just. What his I, name I mean, is. I don't. I see him once a year, other than on television, and I just had a brain freeze. Zucker's a great dude and huge disc golf fan. So there you know. There you go. Uh, a loser for you. Jerry Falwell Jr. He has resigned while being on a forced absence by the school's board. He has now resigned after a pretty salacious story came out today from Reuters. Google Jerry Falwell Jr. You can read it yourself. The contents of it are really not appropriate for some ears which might be listening to this radio program. Um, salacious would probably be the best, uh, best way to describe it. And he is no longer the president of Liberty University. Just Trust me on him being on the uh, losers list. Is that fair? Just trust me on that? Yeah. Sophia Popov was caddying for a few weeks. Somebody wants to know who won the cricket spitting championship. He says it's a real thing. Please just don't say it's held in Mississippi. Those are your winners and losers. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad is off today. Thanks for being with us. Ceasefire text line open 601 879 4395. 601 879 4395. So Ole Miss has released its game day operations plan for the fall. And I'm going to kind of try to relay it to you as straightforward as I can, and then hopefully once I read through it a second time, it will make sense. First of all, some of the things that everybody else is saying, 25% capacity in Vaught-Hemingway, six feet social distancing between people not in the same household, Fans required to wear face coverings at all times when possible, and it mandatory entering, exiting, and moving about in the stadium, strongly encouraged when you're sitting in your seat. Signage at gates, entry and exit points that outline mandates for everybody to wear face coverings, maintain physical distancing, don't enter the stadium if you have any COVID symptoms as outlined by the CDC, hand sanitizer locations all throughout, um, tickets and parking passes digital only, cashless transactions at concession stands, team stores, and other points of sale. Don't bring bags if you don't have to. If you do, you still got to use the clear bag. Um. Tickets 
and how they're going to be handled. Home tickets will be available on a single-game basis and sold in monthly selection waves. In each wave, fans will be able to choose from the next month's home games and pick their preferred stadium section, which will each be sold at 25% capacity. So each section will be sold in 25% capacity. And my assumption is the waves will be based on season ticket priority, giving priority, so how much money you've donated over the course of a long period of time, and whether or not you renewed your season tickets by, I think June 15th was the deadline. So did you renew them early? Did you have season tickets? And how much money you've donated? I think that's how the waves are going to be determined, as they are described. Ole Miss Athletics will determine the reserved seats for each ticket holder by socially distancing accounts within each section. Single-game ticket selections will be paid for using any current account credits for money that you've already paid. Your 2020 season tickets, additional home game tickets, seat cushion, donation payments, all of them, any money that you have paid on or before September 1st will be a credit in your account that you can use to buy tickets. Any remaining balances after the account a credit is applied will be charged on a payment plan. Again, purchasing priority will be given to season ticket holders that renewed by June 15th, followed by Athletics Foundation priority points, the red points, and the date a season ticket was ordered. If inventory is remaining after those groups have their opportunity to purchase tickets, then tickets will be available to the general public. Um, A maximum of eight tickets for each home game will be available per ticketing account. Tickets for the September 26th game against Florida will go on sale September 8th. Both games that are at home in October will go on sale at the end of September, and both November games will go on sale at the end of October. So it's a month-to-month selection process. And the reason they did that is it allows for potential adjustments to stadium capacity up or down later in the season if determined by the governor's office. And if you're a current season ticket holder, you will get an email in the first week of September that will tell you when you get to select your tickets. One other thing here. Pricing is based on where your seats are. Which has always been the case, right? But the difference is, in the past, a season ticket cost X number of dollars. Right? I mean, maybe it was to buy a season ticket for Ole Miss football, it cost you, let's just say, $400. Seven games... 
60, yeah, we'll just call it 400, 400 bucks or 500, whatever the number is. And then there was a required seat donation per ticket based on where your seat is. But because of the way they're doing this, the seat donation and a parking pass is rolled into the cost of the tickets. And so basically if you sit outside the 20s on either side or in the end zone, the south end zone in particular, you're going to pay between $115 and $120 per ticket per game. Scaling all the way up to if you have club seats in the South End Zone Club or the Rebel Club on the east side, your ticket will be between $410 and $445 per seat per game. And you might go, that's insane. Well, when you take into account the donation cost for those seats, you understand why they're priced the way they are. So, does that make sense, Porky? It's a lot to process, but I think so. I think the most the, important point is uh, the fact that they structured it this structured it this way for the potential of expanded capacity later in the season. Yeah, gives them the opportunity to sell more if the situation allows them to. That's the biggest and, thing to me. And and Ole Miss and Mississippi State and basically everybody have used dynamic ticket pricing in the past. So your worst non-conference game might only be a $35 or $40 ticket, but your best conference game might be a $150 ticket. Well, they've taken that away. It's all five SEC games, and so every ticket for every game is priced the same way. But again, the donation that goes with the seat in the section you choose, is going to be rolled into the price of the ticket. Um, Obviously, premium seats are more expensive than non-premium seats. But if you paid, Borky, let's just say you sat in a section where you paid $500 for a season ticket, and the donation that went with each seat was $2,500. So for four season tickets you would have $2,000 in ticket cost and $10,000 in seat license or seat donation. So you're at $12,000. So it would work out to $3,000 per seat per year. Well, if that ticket now costs you $295, let's just use an even number and call it $300, you'll now get five games for a single ticket for $1,500. That makes sense. If, if that makes sense. It does. Plus it's, there's it's a parking a pass rolled into it. I, I feel so bad for, I mean, it's their job at the end of the day, but man, having to sit down and figure all this out, it's just, I don't envy I th- that position at all. I think we're going to get to, uh, maybe later in the week, talk with uh, the head of the Ole Miss ticket office, who has been working extensively on this plan for a while and we'll get him to explain it in the simplest terms possible 
But basically, if you were a season ticket holder, you're going to get an email that says you can select seats on day X at time X, and you'll be able to log in and pick your tickets based on what is available to you and what is available at the time. It's a different time, and it's a unique plan. It's different than what we've heard some other schools doing. We'll see how it works out. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. We will be right back. Got a couple of questions on the C Spire tix, uh, ticket. Sorry. C Spire text line about tickets. Hmm. 601-879-4395 if you want to jump onto the C Spire text line and ask a question. One of them was, what about students? I'm glad you mentioned that because I forgot to um, address that. So student tickets will be purchased on a game-by-game basis. Student section will be located in the north end zone, sections N1 through N10. And the format on seating will be announced soon. Student tickets will be available on a single-game basis, and sales will begin the Monday before each home game. Ole Miss students will receive an email by September 14th with ticket order dates and times based on fall 2020 classifications. I don't know if that means upperclassmen will get priority, how that's going to work. If you're operating on 25% stadium capacity, student section capacity was 10,000. I don't know if it still is. Well, it will say between eight and 10,000, so you'll have between 2,000 and 2,500 student tickets available. So that entire north end zone bowl is where the students sit. And student parking will be included in the cost of the ticket, and that will be at the Jackson Avenue Center. That's the old mall, Walmart, parking lot area that Ole Miss now owns, and they will run campus shuttles for students to the stadium from that parking lot. I guess you could also walk if you wanted to. So, you know, more details to come on this. Some people have asked about uh, suites and club levels. The, the club sections that are kind of open sections will be socially distanced inside and out. So I'm assuming 25% capacity in those, and then skyboxes or suites will maintain their normal operations. So those are kind of viewed as like individual areas, and you're just not allowed to bounce from one to another. You kind of got to stay in the suite that you are ticketed for. So there you go. I know you're thinking it's complicated, right, Borky? It's very complicated. But it it means there's a plan because football is coming and the anticipation is they're going to play on September 26th. That's exciting, even through wordy ticket plans. Somebody said what happens to the money that has already been spent on season tickets. As I understand it, that money will be um, – it's almost like you'll have a credit on your account for what you've spent so far on season tickets, and then that account will be debited 
based on the tickets you purchase throughout the course of the season. And I'm assuming if there's a balance left over or if you choose to opt out, then you will be refunded your money. Kind of or like, at least you'll be you'll be given options. You'll either be able to get a refund or if you want to just donate the money to the university, they will absolutely accept that with open arms, as will Mississippi State and LSU and Alabama and everybody else. And then I'm assuming there also will be a deferment option where if you've already paid, you can just defer that money toward next year or toward tickets you buy in a different sport. Somebody says, will any visitor tickets be sold? Um, No, and they actually address road game tickets as well. Limited road game tickets for everybody in the SEC. I've been told that the number is 500 as the allotment for visiting fans. And so the university will have an allotment that they will distribute. And that will be primarily to player families and, you know, coaches' wives, people within the administration that travel for road games. And I guess potentially banned. There may be, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there's a prohibition on visiting bands this year. You might have your band at a home game, but not on the road. That That's just a guess. I don't know that. For certain, but that's just a guess. And and everybody has a hybrid version this year. That's one thing. We saw the game day release on kind of all the game day operations for Mississippi State on Friday. But they said more information will come on ticketing and how folks can go about their ticketing operation. I don't know if that will be comparable to the way Ole Miss does it. Or if it'll be comparable to the way Alabama does it or LSU does it. Everybody's kind of figuring out what works best for them and trying to implement what is, in most cases, a complex plan in a fairly compact amount of time. I guess everybody, though, Borky, is in a little bit better shape because they're not having to print and mail tickets this year. Yeah, that helps a lot especially if they were planning on doing something that the Raiders did, which was send them a replica of their stadium when the box opens up on its own after you open the package. That sounds expensive. Just a little. And they sent them tickets that they can't use. It's great. Sports Talk Mississippi, two hours in the books. College Football Fix is coming your way next. Welcome back. Sports Talk Mississippi on this Monday, the 24th of August. Richard Cross, Michael Borkey, Brian Haydad will return tomorrow. He's been out for a few days on vacation. We are glad to be with you. C Spire text line is open, 601-879-4395. Want more fast and less furious? Switch to C Spire Fiber and see what real Internet looks like. No data caps, no long-term contracts. And no cancellation fees. Don't settle for slow speeds, lousy reliability, and bad customer service from the other guys. With Seaspire Fiber, you get gigabit speeds, over 99% reliability, and local 24-7 support, so nothing slows you down. See if Seaspire Fiber is available in your area now at cspire.com slash fiber. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. It's time right now for the College Football Fix. Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com. That's the website where you can check out everything that your local Ford dealer has to offer. 
including information on the summer sales event, great deals on the entire lineup of Ford SUVs. Don't forget, you can stop by your local Mississippi Ford dealer and test drive the vehicle of your choice, maybe even the F-150 today. Every Big Ten athletic director, according to an article from 24-7 Sports, wanted a fall 2020 college football season. That is according to Nebraska's Bill Moose. He told Sam uh, McCowan from the Omaha World-Herald just that. In a column published on Saturday, McCowan uh, wrote that Moose said that he and several of his fellow athletic directors, including Gene Smith from Ohio State, Sandy Barber from Penn State, and Ward Manuel at Michigan, pushed hardest for the fall, while Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren reportedly preferred this spring. Moose said, quote, Warren knew where we were coming from, and he was the messenger to the presidents and chancellors. Moose noted that there was unanimous agreement among all conference athletics directors for keeping a season in the fall. Moose added that a Zoom meeting between all the parties did not happen. In addition, Gene Smith and Barry Alvarez were not involved with key discussions that shaped the league's decisions, Moose said. Warren instead was in the meeting with the Big Ten presidents and chancellors on behalf of the athletics directors. Bill Moose from Nebraska said, I knew where our people stood, but I would like to have been in the room where they expressed it to the commissioner and our presidents and chancellors. The commissioner was operating in silos, and the silos weren't connected. And in the end, that created varying degrees of communication not being delivered. Ohio State and Nebraska had football coaches in Ryan Day and Scott Frost that publicly pushed for a fall season even after the Big Ten announced its postponement. Parents of players from both of those teams appeared Last week at the Big Ten headquarters in Rosemont, Illinois, right outside of Chicago, protesting the decision. There was a quote from Glenn Snodgrass, who is the father of a Nebraska linebacker, Garrett Snodgrass, who's a freshman, that said, Our goal is to get something back by Monday at noon, but as of now, we haven't heard anything. I know us as a parent group from the university feel like the football team here at Nebraska is a very safe place to be. We feel like the measures they have in place, the experts they have, the testing they have, goes above and beyond even what's being handed down to them from higher up. We feel like being on that football team and actively a member of that team is more safe than them not being a part of it. I know this week a lot of kids are not involved in the football program, and I just get a little bit concerned with what's going on without that structure of what they have being part of the football team. So the ADs wanted to play in the fall. Kevin Warren preferred the idea of the spring. Powerful athletics directors, including Gene Smith and Barry Alvarez, were not included in some of the most important conversations. And the ADs are only left to hope that Kevin Warren delivered their message to the presidents as opposed to his message of wanting a spring season. Yeah, I mean, the insinuation here, I could just be reading too far into it, 
is that they feel as though they were misrepresented or not represented adequately to their desire. And the presidents are the ones that make the decisions anyway, of course, but to not even hear from your ADs, to, to not have their opportunity to speak is a serious problem. I mean, obviously they had the ability to speak to their own president, mm-hmm. but in terms of the 14 athletics directors representing the schools of the Big Ten, they were not involved in the call in which the commissioner communicated with the president. Now, in fairness, I don't think that is out of the ordinary. Because I know in in terms of structure, the SEC had calls scheduled all the time. The calls with the athletics directors, the calls with the coaches, calls with the presidents and chancellors. But I don't think there's anybody, I don't think there is a single athletics director in the SEC, whether you're talking about Scott Strickland at Florida, Scott Woodward at LSU, Ross Bjork at Texas A&M, John Cohen at Mississippi State, Keith Carter at Ole Miss, Jim Sterk at Missouri, Mitch Barnhart at Kentucky, Ray Tanner at South Carolina, even Candace Story, the newest athletics director among the group at Vanderbilt. I don't think if you ask, and I'm making an assumption here, I don't think any of the 14 athletics directors would tell you that Greg Sankey, Charlie Hussey, Mark Womack, at the conference level, would even come close to misrepresenting what the ADs wanted in the communication with the presidents. And that's partly based on Borky conversations that we've had on the air with Keith Carter and with John Cohen, where both of those men have gone out of their way, regardless of what we were talking about and regardless of when we have talked to them, whether it's back in March after the cancellation of the SEC basketball tournament, throughout the summer, or as recently as last week when we talked with Keith, they have without exception, spoken kindly at worst and glowingly at best about the job that Greg Sankey and the conference office as a whole has done in managing this, in communicating, in working with the individual schools, in working with everybody is on the same page. That doesn't mean all the opinions line up. But the way the SEC has operated for a really long time and the way the Big Ten used to operate was an AD group or a president's group would come to a consensus. It might not be unanimous, but they would then put forth what at least looked like on the outside a unanimous front. You know, almost like church leadership. 
Right, if you got leaders in a church, like, like an elder group or a deacon group or whatever, they may sit in a meeting room and debate, debate amongst themselves over a specific decision. But once they reach a decision through a vote or just discussion and consensus, they put forth a unified front to the rest of the church. And that's how you avoid division. It doesn't always work. And churches are famous for being divided and getting feelings hurt and going in different directions. But at least from a leadership standpoint, that's usually their goal is to come to consensus among the leadership group and then move on. How about you contrast this? Great point on the C Spire text line. 601-879-4395. Contrast the Big Ten and its decision not to play football and the dissension related to that decision with the Pac-12 who came to the same decision not to play football but everybody is in agreement that that was the right decision. I mean, you read a term paper on compare and contrast right there. Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll be right back. Sports Talk Mississippi with you, streaming at supertalk.fm. Ceasefire text line 601-879-4395. Why is an AD frustrated that someone else didn't convey his true feelings to his boss when he apparently wasn't man enough to tell him himself? How about manning up and doing your job? Yeah, I, I didn't get that from the story at all. I mean, there were... Well, and his were, boss also was on his side here, so it's yeah, not I mean, his boss that but, needed to hear him. Yeah, Bill Moose and the Nebraska chancellor and university system president were all on the same page. And, and I think all of these ADs communicated with their presidents directly. So it wasn't just about communication. Actually, it wasn't at all about communication between an AD and a president at school X. It was about the collective viewpoint of the athletics directors being communicated clearly and effectively by the commissioner of the Big Ten and Kevin Warren to the collective group of presidents. And, you know, the commissioner has to kind of thread a little bit of a needle because ultimately the commissioner is hired and fired by the presidents, not the ADs. But the ADs are the group with which he or she works with the most. And if Kevin Warren did not, with the same fervor that the 14 ADs had for playing a fall season, communicate that to the presidents, then it sounds like he was a little negligent in his job in communicating the wishes of the ADs. Now, the presidents might have still voted the idea down, but if Kevin Warren was saying, you know, really... You know, from the conversations that we've had with athletics directors and, you know, some with the coaches, they would like to play in 
they'd like to play in the fall. I have recommended to them that we play in the spring, and you know they're not really necessarily on board with that, but I, I think that's the best course of action. That's not a, that's not a, that's not good, not good at all. Now, if Kevin Warren says to the presidents, "We have worked extensively as a group with the athletics directors, and the ads are communicating with their coaches." And we've talked about the possibility of a spring season, and there's just no support at all among the ADs. I, I kind of thought initially that was a good idea, but the ADs and the coaches are collectively, adamantly against that idea. And that group of men and women believe wholeheartedly that they can play a season, that they've got the proper protocols in place, that the testing structure that we've got as a league is sufficient to handle a, a difficult fall, that there are going to be some bumps in the road, but we're, we are committed to getting through them, and we need and we want to try this, he's got to try to be persuasive without overstepping because ultimately that decision is going to rely with the presidents and the chancellors. But if he didn't go to bat for the ADs, he's going to have some serious issues working with his constituency going forward. While, yes, it's the ADs that ultimately hire and fire you, you got to be able to work with the people that you work with most all the time. you got to have their trust. you got to have their back. I mean, it's almost like, It's almost like Kevin Warren is the CEO of the Big Ten. But there is a board of directors. And in a board of directors meeting, he is the CEO and the chairman of the board. And a powerful and respected CEO and chairman of the board has the ability to sway the board. But ultimately, the board still has to vote. Jim Delaney would be a good example when he was the commissioner of the Big Ten. He had the ability to sway and direct all of the presidents to get what was necessary. But if Kevin Warren is the CEO... All of these ADs are like executive vice presidents that have tons of responsibility within the confines of the company. Anyway, I may have taken that analogy a little too far, but I think they're going to have serious issues in the Big Ten going in because it appears as if there is a significant disconnect and a significant lack of trust between the ADs and the coaches and the leader of the conference. And to go back to the Pac-12 comparison, Borky, Larry Scott, who has been at times a bumbling buffoon in terms of leading that conference, was somehow able to build consensus among the ADs and the coaches and the presidents, and everybody is on the same page. 
David Shaw is going out doing interviews and saying, I'm proud of the decision we made. We made the decision based on medical advice and the scientific evidence that is available to us today. And we felt comfortable as a group. Justin Wilcox, the head coach at Cal, does an interview on the radio last week. And he says, you know, it's a bummer for our players, but we all understand why this was made. It was very clearly communicated to us why it is that we needed to step back and push back to the spring. They're all saying the same thing. And that's the difference. And it's a big, big difference. I can't help but wonder uh, if the future of the Big Ten relies on if the Power Three, which is what what I'm going to call them this year, uh, are successful. Because let's say it doesn't work and there's outbreaks everywhere and the SEC plays two games and they have to shut it down. Then at least for the Big Ten, it's easier to swallow that even though there wasn't communication and we're all pissed off, at least we see now that it didn't work and we made the right call. But if the Power Three pull it off and they play a season and something happens with the spring and it falls through or all the high-level players in the Big Ten decide that they don't want to play and next year you play two seasons but they're both shortened and altered because of how you had to do it, I wonder if that changes the structure of the Big Ten at all. Because Ohio State on its own is not bigger than the Big Ten, I don't think. But Ohio State... Penn State, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nebraska are bigger than the Big Ten. And if the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 pull it off and they find a way to play 10 games and have a season without much negative, there's no way they stick around in its current form. In my, There's no possible way Gene Smith and Ryan Day at Ohio State watch Alabama and LSU and Georgia and Florida play a full season and play, as we've learned, for a, a playoff, a national championship, and win it. That they accept the Big Ten's current structure. I, there's no way you can convince me that they would allow that to happen and not do anything about it. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, in terms of going to be bad for the Big Ten... I mean, the Big Ten's not going away. Schools are too powerful, too much money tied up in it, great TV deals. Yeah, it's it's strong at its core. They've got a leadership issue. And it could create some rocky days ahead. And certainly dissension among the ranks. Mississippi State has had another player who has opted out this season. Senior Tory Dixon has said he's opting out of playing in the 2020 season. The former defensive back who was listed on the roster this year as a wide receiver announced his decision on Twitter earlier today and noted that he also plans to be a graduate transfer in December. Tory Dixon appeared in 15 games during his Mississippi State career after joining the Bulldogs in 2017 from East Mississippi Community College, redshirted in 2017, played in 10 games in 2018, last year played in five games with one tackle. Second Mississippi State player to opt out, Tyler Williams, corner did so last week.
when Mississippi State coach Mike Leach was asked this Saturday if he anticipated any more of his players opting out in the days ahead. He didn't seem to know. He said, if they're there, I coach them. So that's kind of where we're at. It's kind of a moving target. So probably not a decision that has much of an effect on the field in Tari Dixon stepping away from the Mississippi State program, but uh, an opt-out nonetheless. More coming up. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Tune in this Friday as Super Talk Mississippi broadcast live at the new Mississippi Aquarium. The aquarium, located in downtown Gulfport, opens to the public on Saturday. It's going to be a premier institution delivering an awe-inspiring experience that supports animal research and conservation. You can visit the website msaquarium.org to become a member and to get your tickets today. That's really cool. Um. This Friday, high school football is back with private school and academy school football games already being played, and most of the states starting back on Friday, September 4th, Friday at 10. It's the Mississippi Farm Bureau Insurance Company scoreboard show, the 25th anniversary of the scoreboard show on Super Talk Mississippi, and it's going to be fantastic. Can't wait for the start of a new season. Farm Bureau Insurance Company scoreboard show, Starts Friday, 10 o'clock on your local Super Talk Mississippi station, mobile device, Alexa speaker, and on supertalk.tv. You can also watch this show on supertalk.tv. And if you got Roku, you can, uh, can stream it to your uh, television. So you can get Michael Borky on the big screen every single day. Yeah, and once on Sunday, too. Sundays as well. Eight Six to days a week. I know. I, I'm a grinder, man. I even did some work on Saturday, too, so I, I'm a seven-day-a-week guy. You worked on Saturday? Eh, just a little. I sat down and got some stuff uh, prepared for the week. There you go. Football's coming. It, it's going to make content a lot more fun around here. Uh, the Preparing for the show, the sitting down uh, you know, early after my kid gets up and thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do today? And now it's more like, oh, we get to do this. Can't yeah. wait. Looks like we're going to have the NFL on ABC once again. ABC was the original home of Monday Night Football before it moved to ESPN and is poised to return to the NFL business in a very big way. The Walt Disney Company's ABC broadcast network is in an increasingly strong position, according to a story from Front Office Sports, to score its first live NFL game package in 15 years. ABC had Monday Night Football from 1970 through 2005 and was kind of the trailblazer for the NFL's path to primetime television. Disney, which owns ESPN, had ESPN take over Monday Night Football in 2006 when they absorbed ABC Sports under the ESPN umbrella. Negotiations between the NFL and all of their TV partners, ESPN, Fox, NBC, and CBS, for the next round of TV rights are in their early stages, and nothing is finalized at this point, but sources, according again to this story, on both sides of the table say Disney is making a strong push to bring ABC back to the NFL TV lineup. If ESPN retains Monday Night Football then you could potentially see a simulcast or 
megacast production like ESPN has done for some big college football games on ABC. And apparently both Disney and the NFL want it to happen. As an added bonus, ABC ESPN could potentially break into the lucrative Super Bowl rotation, which is currently split between CBS, NBC, and Fox. Right now, Disney only gets rights to the one wildcard playoff telecast and the Pro Bowl, which are now shown simulcast on ESPN and on ABC. Remember earlier when I said the NFL is a big business? They currently pocket over $5 billion a year in rights fees from their television partners. All of the TV deals for the NFL expire in the next two years, setting the stage for a billion dollars negotiation that is expected to reshape sports television. The interesting thing about ESPN working all this is they pay the most but get the least. They get a Monday night football game that has gotten increasingly better over the years, but ESPN plays the NFL $1.9 billion a year. NBC, $950 million for Sunday night football, multiple playoff games, and being in the Super Bowl rotation. $1 billion for CBS for that Sunday afternoon AFC package. Fox pays $1.1 billion for the Sunday afternoon NFC package, and then about $650 million more for Thursday night football. All of those deals expire after the 2022 season. What are those deals worth two years from now? So you've got the numbers in front of you. How much difference is there? Because as we're learning more and more, see, people talk about NBA ratings a lot, and it's justified for sure, but they're down like... 50% over the last, I think, five or six years. I mean, it, not good. But it's still number two every day behind one political talk show. And they have plummeted. Live sports is the only thing on television that's still valuable outside of apparently one political talk show. Who, Tucker? Yeah, Tucker, man. He, he smokes everybody now. It's unbelievable what he's able to do. He, and he smokes the NBA. But the NBA beats everybody else right now, still, despite all of their issues with turning people off from political messaging and stuff like that. They still only lose to him. Live sports is the future of television. I think everything else is going to go to streaming and all that stuff. So in two years from now, what does this deal look like? Because nothing else at all that you can put on television comes close to the draw that these will have. I think the numbers are going to go up. And probably up significantly. But the one question I would ask is, what is the NFL going to look like in terms of social messaging and protesting, especially with regard to the national anthem? Because when we saw that three years ago, in the NFL, it hurt ratings. And there are people that want to try and spin it and tell you there were other reasons. And I'm not saying that there may not have been other contributing factors, but we heard it on this show week after week after week after week. I'm not watching. And that's it's only anecdotal. 
But I think it's pretty strong anecdotal. When we were hearing that throughout the entire season, if they are going to kneel during the national anthem, if they are going to disrespect the flag, and, and I don't care how you feel about it, like you individually, there are a ton of people who view kneeling during the national anthem as disrespecting the flag. Whether it is or it isn't, we can debate it all day long. What we can't debate is a lot of people view that as disrespectful to the flag and to our military men and women. And there's nothing you can say or do to change those minds. John Harris with the Houston Texans told us on the radio that if there are protests during the national anthem of Houston Texans games, it will affect sponsorships. It will affect sponsorships with the Dallas Cowboys. It's not going to affect sponsorships with the Seattle Seahawks or the San Francisco 49ers, but it will in Dallas. It will in Houston. It might in Kansas City. I don't know if Kansas City is a good example or not. It could in Nashville. It might or might not in Atlanta. might or might not in Carolina. But the TV numbers will reflect it this year if you have a bunch of players that are kneeling or protesting in ways that are offensive to a lot of people. Now, they're fantastic to a lot of other people, but to a lot of people who are big-time football fans, they are also bigger-time fans of America. Regardless of what you hear, see, read, there are a lot of people that as much as they love football, they love the country more. They're patriotic to their core, and it matters. It matters deeply to them, and they will say, if you're going to do that, I'm not watching. That's a long-winded answer, Borky, to the question that you asked about what are the numbers going to look like in two years. NFL ratings bounce back. We didn't really have many protests this past year. They bounced the last couple back of years. once it started being a storyline. I mean, like you once said. Once it stopped being a storyline. Once it stopped being a storyline, excuse me. Um, but to your point, yeah, there were a, a few other things. You had some key quarterback injuries and stuff, but once that storyline disappeared, they went back to normal. That's undeniable. So... That's the only thing that I can see that I can see potentially affecting networks outlaying massive amounts of money for these TV rights. But ultimately, the decision makers at ABC, ESPN, CBS, NBC, and Fox are more likely to fall on the side of the social justice piece of the argument and the players' right to protest, and they will write gargantuan checks.
Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.